So the scripture reading today is Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 25. If you're able, stand with me for the reading of God's word. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the son of Canaan, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Iscariot, sorry. Jesus, these twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, le- lepers, cast out demons, you received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, no silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave the house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise and serpents, as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before the governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you, have to say, what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for, your names, for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant to like his master. If they have called the master of the house of Bezabel, how much more will they malign those of his household? Thank you. Turn your Bibles with me to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 6. Today we're going to see again God approaching the topic of our sexuality. We saw this a couple weeks ago in chapter 5. And then there was an appendix to that teaching last week, the beginning of chapter 6. And today we come right back to that area of teaching. So we might ask this question, why do our sexual lives matter so much to God? Right, we live in a culture that 
those things are, that's all private. That's nobody else's business. Don't talk about it. You know, everybody does what they need to do and what they want to do. But Scripture doesn't do that. In fact, these kind of topics matter very much to the Lord. So we have to ask ourselves, why does it matter so much to God? Is, is He a prude? I mean, is He just, just like, oh, don't, don't do that. That's gross. I don't want to see that. Or is He just a prude? Does He have nothing better to do? A famous atheist named Richard Dawkins once said that one reason he cannot believe in God is that God would have so many other things to deal with. Why on earth would he care who, who he, Richard Dawkins, who he was having sex with? Why would God care about that? Essentially, Richard Dawkins has a problem with the authority of God. Rather than revealing that God has nothing better to do than govern all the details of our lives, when we see God's concern about these details, rather it reveals that he cares deeply about us. Yes, he is holding the cosmos together. And he's keeping planets spinning and stars burning. But he is also deeply concerned with the nitty-gritty details of our lives. Not because he's a prude, but because he understands more than any of us the incredible negative consequences of sin. Thus, because of his love for us, he seeks to warn us of the dangers of sin. Such is the nature of our passage today. Essentially, what we find today, um, we find two lectures, which continue the first lecture in chapter 5. There's three lectures then. So this is the second and third lecture uh, about, about, uh, about our sexuality, about the dangers of sexual sin. Um, once again, we see that these warnings are given to a son about a predatory woman. This is not because men are not predators. We know that all too well, that that is not the case. Rather, it's because this son is not currently involved in sexual sin, and the father is giving the best warning to his son, given his life circumstance. All the things that are told to the son could also be advice given to a daughter about predatory men by just changing the gender. In both these lectures, the father indicates that the son is currently not in sexual sin and is currently walking in wisdom by encouraging him to bind the teachings to his heart and around his neck to keep it close to him. This indicates that he already has the wisdom and therefore must avoid these pitfalls. In the first lecture, the father shows the son just how utterly foolish sexual sin is. In the second lecture, the father gives a lengthy illustration about how sexual sin might creep up on him. In both these lectures, the father talks clearly about the specifically destructive nature of sexual sin and reveals the true remedy to sexual sin. So now, just so we can be very clear, without being too graphic or inappropriate, what is included in sexual sin? Now, in this particular case, it's talking about some specific illustrations here, but what we can include in this, this is premarital sexual activity, this is extramarital sexual activity, this is pornography, this is, uh, this is, you know, before marriage, this includes oral activity, this includes uh, uh, physical touch, sexual physical touch outside of marriage. Any kind of physical sexual activity outside of marriage is sin. No matter what it is, no matter what it looks like, outside of a biblical heterosexual marriage, it is sin. 
So let's go ahead and read this passage. We'll begin in uh, chapter 6 and verse 20. We'll read all the way through the end of chapter 7. So with that kind of context in mind, understanding what's going on in these passages, let's go ahead and read what the text says to us. It says, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart, heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. To preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not despise her beauty, do not desire, excuse me, do not desire her beauty in your heart. And do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can, walk, can one walk on hot coals and his feet, feet not be scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his household. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. To keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and as I have, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the streets, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Let's pray. Lord, 
we thank you that there is no topic off limits. Lord, there is no topic that you are uncomfortable to talk about. Lord, there is no sin that you are unwilling to warn us about. God, you are gracious to us in that. It's not hard to bear the fact that you care that much about us. Lord, we don't necessarily like it. Lord, oftentimes we rebel against it. But you do care about us enough to tell us where there is sin, to warn us about sin, to warn us about its destruction that is coming our way. Pray, pray, Lord, that you would help us to be open to your word, to hear what it's teaching us. Lord, that we would be submissive to it. Lord, I pray that you would point out sin in our lives today, that we can repent of it, that we can find grace today. Praise in your name. Amen. So this, this passage is a complex myriad of, of, of lessons and teaching that we get out of this passage. So what we're going to do today, I've actually kind of broken this down into four major sections. It's not going to go exactly verse by verse, but it will be found in this passage as we look at it. Um, some things I think are very important for us to understand about sexual sin, about preparing for those temptations, preparing our children for those temptations, and also what God says is the real, true remedy of that. First of all, we want to see that there is an importance of teaching these things to our children. That it is important to teach these things to our children. Now, oftentimes, I know parents, you, you know, the talk is the thing that you put off as long as absolutely possible because it's incredibly awkward and you don't want to talk about that, right? So, but, but scripture here, you have Solomon who is very open in discussing about this with his son. He says, you need to understand this. Pay attention to what I'm saying. Look in verse 20 of chapter 6. My son, keep your father's commandment. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Again, chapter 7. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. He is begging his son, listen to this teaching I have. Because he knows the father father, his son, is going to deal with this. We must not put these conversations off. These conversations should happen early and should happen often. Yes, the conversations will be, off, will be awkward, but children are exposed to these kinds of sin far earlier than we want to realize. I found out this week, I was talking to one of the teachers at the school and this teacher was explaining how during their class they were uh, unable to use any of the computer labs. So he had them for some research they were doing. He had them pull out their phones. And one of the students was having a difficult time with this. Pull out his phone and he was I, I can't do it. I can't do it. He said, okay, well, can I help you? And he said, sure, let me help you. And he says, and he says is it okay to go on your phone, right? He's asking him, making sure. And, and, he, and the, the student says, yeah, it's fine. Pulls up the internet, porn. Twelve years old 12 years old the last thing he was looking at the internet before that class was pornography we tend to think of our children as they don't, they don't do that they're 12, 13, 14 they're innocent, they don't do that it's not reality that's just not reality 
the statistics about pornography, sexual touching, oral sex, intercourse, they're all happening in our world at very early ages. In fact, last time I looked at these kind of statistics, it said that there's many middle schoolers, a good portion of middle schoolers, think that there's nothing wrong with oral sex. That means middle schoolers are doing this. They're involved in pornography. They're involved in this kind of sexual touching. We see this in our world all over the place. We, hear, we see about young children being exposed to these kind of gross and disgusting and heinous activity. And yet we want to come back and say, well, that's not my kids. I don't need to talk about that with them yet because they don't know about this yet. Do you really want them to find out the hard way? Or should we have them find out safely within within a household where they know that they're loved, where it's not some guy coming up to our 11-year-old daughter and saying, hey, let's do this. Hey, show me this. And find out that way. Rather, parents, we could take a proactive attitude and say, hey, if this ever happens, this is how you need to respond to it. You know, this, this kind of thing is going to happen. Someone is going to do this at some point, very likely. This is how we can be proactive about this. Tell your daughters about what boys may attempt to solicit. Give them guidance about why they should guard their bodies. Talk to your sons about the proper way to think about women and sex. Pornography teaches a horribly disfigured view of what sexuality is. Teach them what God teaches about that. Share them about the importance of purity. Notice then what Scripture has here. There's a close correlation between the teaching of the Father and biblical law. He says to listen to my commandments. Don't forsake my teaching. These words are, are it's the, the words mishvah and, 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 and Torah, right? This is words that are also used to describe the Old Testament law, Right? What basically the Father is saying is, my teaching is lining up with Scripture. I'm trying to tell you what Scripture says about sexuality so that you can be safe. Right? So that you can be guarded from what could happen if you don't follow that teaching. Our goal as parents is to teach our children God's Word. It is an unshaking foundation. God's Word is an unshaking foundation. Learning about these things from their peers is not an unshaking foundation. Scripture will give our children and ourselves that unshaking foundation for thinking about these issues. So we must, we must, we must be cautious and be, it's so important to teach our children about these things. But secondly, we see here in this passage that sexual sin is alluring. It is very alluring. You know, we tend to want to think, oh, that's just bad stuff, right? The problem is that every single one of us are fully aware that sexual sin is very, very attractive. We saw in chapter 5 that, that what was emphasized, this, this strange woman, this, this, this sinful woman, this situation's speech. Right here again in chapter 6, it does the same thing. Verse 24 says, This preserves you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. We see here, and, and again in, in, in chapter 7, what's going on? The woman is speaking to this man trying to give him, trying to make it look really good, make it sound really good. She's using her words to do so. We talked a couple weeks ago about how important it is to guard our communication, that communication all, or adultery always starts with words. Adultery always starts with words. You don't end up 
in, a, in an inappropriate relationship with a coworker because one day, like, you're in a broom closet and, hey, they were there too and just something happened, right? That's not how it works, right? That happens on TV. That's not how it works in real life. Now what happens? You start tell, talking to her. She starts laughing at your jokes. And you go, whoa, she's giving me attention that my wife doesn't, that I don't think my wife gives me. And then you're drawn over to her, Right? And then a relationship comes together. And then that relationship becomes intimate. And it becomes deeper and deeper and deeper until adultery is taking place. Communication always breeds intimacy. That's why we talked a couple weeks ago about how important it is to guard your communication, to be careful about what level of communication you have with people of the opposite sex. Um, and to be, to be very guarded and to be very careful about our communication. But this passage is also in chapter 6, it also, and, and chapter 7 also brings up the, uh, the idea that what, we're more, what we may be more familiar with, what we may think of more as attraction, is the physical attraction. Look at that in, in verse 25 of chapter 6. It says, Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. The same thing in chapter 7, in verses 10 through 20. She is making this look really good making all this sin, making what she's, about, what she's offering him, she's making it look as beautiful as possible. And we'll look at that again here in a second uh, in more detail. But here we see that, uh, or, that, um, that her, her beauty in chapter 6 is, is attracting this man. Um, so this speech and beauty both make the undisciplined man very stupid, right? The two of those things together create stupidity in mankind. Men here, we, we, this is a universal about men. Men will notice beauty. They will notice it. It's how we're wired. The difference is what we do with that information. The fool will take that information and then turn that into lust and take that into inappropriate places. Whereas the wise man will take that information and flee the temptation. Say, oh, that's a pretty lady. Okay, whatever. It has nothing to do with me. Right? I have nothing to do with that. I'm, I'm just going to be with my wife, and I'm going to stay away from that situation, right? So the wise man, yes, will also recognize beauty, but he doesn't take that inappropriately, right? And he's guarded about that. He's very careful about making sure that there's never an inappropriate situation where the thing, where that could get worse, right? He makes sure he flees that temptation and runs to the arms of his wife, as we saw in chapter 5. In chapter 7, we see it's, it's not merely the woman's physical beauty that attracts the man, but it's also what sexual sin seems to offer. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, the woman begins to, begins to, uh, begins to well, in ten, in, from 10 forward, what happens? She basically jumps out of a bush and grabs him, gives him a hug and kisses him and says, Hey, let's do this, Right? It's essentially what she's doing. She, she, she jumps on him and, and, and begins this whole thing. Um, but in chapter 7, we, we, when she, we see her start to talk. First of all, she starts giving excuses, right? Sin does that to us, right? Sin loves to give us an excuse why it's okay, right? Especially sexual sin likes to give us an excuse why it's, why it's okay. In verse 14, she says, I had to offer sacrifices and today I've paid my vows. Right? Essentially, she gives a religious excuse. She said, hey, God, hey, dude, I've already asked him for forgiveness for this. It's okay, right? What? <laughs> How does this make any sense? 
Now, so we, we do the same thing though, right? We come up to sin and we say, you know what? I can just ask God for forgiveness later, right? I'll ask him for forgiveness after I've done it, but I'm gonna do it first, right? I know it's sin, it's coming up. I know what's gonna happen. I'll ask for forgiveness later. We get really spiritual, right? How cool is that? I'm gonna ask for forgiveness, aren't I spiritual? I'm gonna do it anyway, I'm gonna sin. I'm gonna get, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna do that anyway, but I'm gonna ask for forgiveness, right? So we come up with religious excuses in this particular sense. Think a good illustration of this, I'm, I'm gonna, uh, as some of you know, I grew up, I grew up Catholic. Now, uh, in Wisconsin, those kind of, you're either Catholic or Lutheran, right? And, and Lutherans, you didn't really hear that much about, at least I did, not in Fond du Lac, it was much more Catholicism. But we, we, we talked about oftentimes in the Catholic Church that one of the things when you went to confession to the priest, you could also confess future sin, right? Well, this weekend, I'm going to be going partying, I'm probably going to get drunk, and I might do some stupid stuff, can I get forgiveness for that, right? And it was kind of, you know, part of that theology, yes, that theology does exist, but we kind of made a joke about it too, right? We had, we had this joke that we would tell in Wisconsin about how, did you hear about the guy who, you know, the, the, or this guy goes up to his priest, says, hey, I'm going to be partying this weekend, I'm going to be, you know, doing all this stuff, and I just wanted to make sure that I'm going to be forgiven for that, and the pr- priest says, oh yeah, go ahead and do these things, and that'll, then you'll get forgiveness for that thing when it, when it takes place, and then he says, alright, cool, well, thank you, thank you, priest, thank, thank you, Father, and he says, okay, so you're bringing the beer on Saturday, right? Right, so it's, you know it's, it's kind of a silly illustration, but but again, um, we 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 tend to do this, right? We tend to give even religious excuses. Here she does, right here she gives this religious excuse, this this offering. She's saying, "Look, I've done my sacrifices. I'm pure again. So anything we do is completely pure, right? I've done my sacrifices. I've asked for my forgiveness. I'm all good. Let's go ahead and do this. You're not going to be sinning if you're doing this with me." Um, Rather, we need to understand that forgiveness does not mean immunity from consequences. Just because the Lord has forgiven us does not mean that we are immune from any consequences that could take place. Another thing is this, when she brings up the sacrifices, the, the, uh, she says she went to offer her sacrifices. This is her peace offerings. Right now in the Old Testament, God talks about the peace offerings. The peace offering was a really interesting offering. When you gave your offering, the, the priest actually only took a portion of the meat and then the person got to take the rest of the meat home. Well, that's pretty cool, right? You go and take your offering, and now you get steaks that night, right? So essentially, not only is she trying to give a religious excuse, she says, I've got steaks at home. Now, what guy, unless he's a vegan or a vegetarian, is going to say no to that, right? I've got steaks at home. I, I went and did my peace offerings, so that means, that means good food is on the way here, right? Well, that sounds pretty awesome. Right? Doesn't, doesn't sin do that to us? It promises us something. It promises us something that we may even perceive as good. But ultimately what it leads to is, what we'll see here uh, as we, in our next point here, we'll see that it leads ultimately to death, to destruction. Look at how she explains this further. Not only does she promise food. She says, I've come out to, in verse 15, so now I've come out to meet you and, and seek you eagerly and I found you. Right? Giving him some value. I found, you're the one I've been waiting for, right? And he goes, oh, that feels pretty good. That's pretty exciting. And then, he, then she tells him, she continues on to entice him. She says, I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens of Egyptian linen, right? My house is fancy. There's lots of money. You, 
Notice she never asks for money, right? She never asks for money. It says in the text, it says in verse 10 that she's dressed as a prostitute, but it doesn't ever say she's a prostitute. In fact, we find out otherwise. So she's dressed in a way that makes it look like she's a prostitute, yet she's not. She never asks for money. She promises him wealth. She promises him prosperity. She promises him this luxury. He says, and I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloe and cinnamon, right? We might say, I've got the candles on, right? The candles are lit. It smells great in the bedroom. Are you going to come over here? Right? And he's, he's lured in and enticed. And then, and then he even, even gives a promise here of, of endless romance. She says, she says, come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight uh, ourselves with love. Have endless romance. It's going to be whole night together. It's going to be great. And further, she continues on her enticement. She says, basically then also, and no one's going to find out, right? My husband's gone. He took the money with him. He's on a business trip. I know what he's going. He's not coming back till full moon. It's going to be a couple days, maybe weeks, whatever it is, before he's going to be back. She knows when he's going to be back, and she says, he's not going to be here. Who's going to know, right? And sin does the exact same thing thing. It promises us everything but leaves us with nothing. Sin will promise you everything. It'll promise anonymity. It'll promise that, that you know, it's all going to be okay. God will forgive you. It's all, it's all good. But at the end of the day, it just leads to more sin and destruction. Third, we see here that sexual sin is destructive. Sexual sin is destructive. We see this all over the place. Right now, especially, if you pay attention to the news or Facebook feed or whatever the case is, you see every day new sexual harassment, sexual allegations are being made. Every single day in Hollywood with Kevin Spacey and others. Politics with the whole situation with Judge Roy Moore and others. We see pastors falling to sexual sin. We see teachers falling to sexual sin. No one is protected from this. Every single person is, is likely to, is, is, it's possible for them to fall into it. We see that sexual sin is destructive. In chapter 6, verses 26 through 35, it describes this. It describes how destructive it can be. It says, uh, the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Think of the, the illustration being given here. Imagine if you had a torch, right? If you have a torch, you're usually going to hold it here. Now, if you've got a torch and you hold it right here, what's going to happen? Your face is going to burn off. That would be a bad idea, right? A man can't hold fire close to his chest and not be burned. Right? Or can he put coals on his, on his uh, uh, or can one walk on hot coals and his feet, feet not be scorched? Right? Um, so is he who goes to a neighbor's wife. No one touches her. No one who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes his revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. There is destruction waiting at the door of sexual sin. The exit of that door is just destruction waiting for you. 
And I will explain a couple of these verses. Some of these are a little bit, illustrations are a little bit tough to kind of work our minds around. Uh, first of all, in verse 26, it says, the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. So is he trying to say that prostitution is not a bad thing, but having adultery is a bad thing? Is that what he's saying? It, it could sound like that, right? But here, let me, let me explain what's going on here. Uh, one commentator, uh, Longman, explains it this way. He says, illicit relationships are either, with either a prostitute or a married woman, will cost the son. But the latter will be much more than the former in terms of consequences. A prostitute will cost money, but a relationship with another man's wife may well cost the son his life, as will be specified in verses 34 and 35. Now, both of these things, then, are described as highly destructive. One will take away your wealth. You will lose all your money. You lose everything. And the other one, you could lose your life, right? 34 and 35 talks about the, the, wife, the husband of this wife. When he finds out, he might come after you and try to kill you, right? He very likely will, right? Um, both are highly destructive. But what, so what's it doing here in verse 36? Essentially, it's, trying to, trying to, it's thinking in practical terms. With prostitution, one marriage is, is destroyed, right? That, that person who involved himself in prostitution destroys his own marriage. And when adultery takes place, so two marriages are destroyed. So in other words, there is a greater consequence that comes from, from, from a practical standpoint, there's a greater consequence that comes from adultery than from prostitution. Not that both are, that one is good and the other is bad. Both are bad. Um, but it, 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 uh, it will destroy, it'll destroy both those marriages. Now verses 30 and 31 also, he brings up this illustration. It says, people do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. So, is Proverbs saying, it's okay to steal stuff? No. Rather, it's not condoning theft, but it's saying that someone can actually, we can understand. If someone who's poor and they steal and they're starving to death and they steal a, a banana or steal an apple, you know, kind of like, I understand that, right? I, I get it. At the same time, if he gets caught, there's still consequences, are there not? Right? Um, but then what he says here is, is then uh, he who commits adultery, rather, lacks sense. Like nobody says, well, you know, that guy, he, he needed it, so it's okay. Right? No, you go, you moron? What were you thinking? Right? Nobody goes to somebody who, you know, when, when these sexu sex allegations, when these kind of things come up in the media, nobody's sitting there and saying, well, it, it was okay that they did that. Right? that. That was a good thing that, you know, when he was 30 years old, he had an inappropriate relationship with a 14-year-old. That was okay, right? He, he needed the attention at the time. It was all right. No! Nobody does that. Nobody thinks that way. No, you said, that guy's a moron. It was stupid. What he did was absolutely foolish. And it says he will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Verse 34 and 35 then says, For the jealousy of a man makes a man furious. He will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse though you multiply gifts. Jealousy is only right for us within marriage. This guy's jealousy is talked about in a not necessarily in a particularly positive way, but saying, look, this guy's going to be jealous and he's going to come after you, 
right? Scripture actually talks about this in other places, that jealousy is actually appropriate within the marriage relationship. I love this um, uh, Shy Lin in one of his songs called The Jealous One. He makes this statement. He says, he says, I can't think of anything worse of if I tried than a man who smirks when you flirt with his bride. Right? Howard, you know, if you weren't jealous, if someone was flirting with your wife and you weren't jealous, there's a problem. There's a major problem. The man whose wife uh, cheated on him will, will indeed seek out the other man's life. Um, this, this danger is all too apparent. There was, a, there was a man in Dallas who had, a very wealthy man in Dallas who had had a, a, an affair. And when, he, when, the other, when the husband found out and it all became public, this wealthy man barricaded his house, put cameras up all over the place, put up fencing, and made sure he was protected. Guard dogs, the whole works, because he knew that husband was going to come after him. Right? And probably rightly so. Right? And we don't, we don't, we don't blame the husband for that. We say that guy was stupid for doing that, but then, oh wow, you actually protected yourself. That's probably a good idea. You probably need it, right? He's going to come after you with something. Um, then in, uh, in uh, chapter 7, verses 21 through 27, we, we, we see that, that this doesn't only just lead to financial ruin that we see in chapter 6, or this kind of uh, just leading to, uh, t- you know, this this side of heaven kind of ruin, this world, this life's ruin, not only just uh, just leading to, to that kind of death, but we also see it doesn't just lead to financial ruin or threats from the husband, but also the consequences of all sin, which is death. Even the mighty cannot stand. Look at verse, um, at verse 27 especially. It says, our house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. The sin will lead to death. There will be temporary consequences, almost certainly. But the eternal consequences are far worse. Our sexual sin deserves death. And not just dying, but also eternal separation from God. So what's the remedy? Our last point is the remedy of sexual sin. What Solomon encourages his son to do is essentially to marry wisdom. Make wisdom your bride Marriage is sacred. It depicts the relationship that God has with his people through Christ. When we distort that image through sexual sin before or after marriage, we destroy the image that marriage was intended to depict. As, so as we've seen this sin, this is why God takes sexual sin so seriously. Because it destroys the image that God created. This image that's supposed to picture the, the relationship between us and his son. The, the Christian relationship, it's supposed to depict that. And rather, it's when it's destroyed like that, it's an affront on God himself. In chapter 6, verses 20 through 24, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, there's this continuing call. He says in, in chapter 6, My son, keep your father's commandment. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life, to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Chapter 6, the son is encouraged to keep wisdom very close. But then look what he does in chapter 7. Look at how this teaching escalates. He says, My son, keep my commandments, chapter 7, verse 1, and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. 
Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Essentially, they're that phrase, the, the phrase, you are my sister. What that means in the, in the ancient world, that was, also, that was another way to talk about how you would say to your wife. What would you, a thing you would say to your wife? You are my sister. You are my wife. So there's a, a very intimate relationship that is being described here, not just family bond, but, but a marriage relationship taking place. The father goes a step further and asks his son to have an intimate relationship with wisdom, even to the point of marrying her. In chapter 5, the son was told that the best defense is a good offense. To avoid sexual sin, enjoy marriage with your spouse. Here the son is told to have a covenant marriage-type relationship with wisdom. Have a relationship with wisdom. We've seen here already in, in the book of Proverbs that wisdom is a person. Ultimately, that person is Jesus. Scripture tells us, Scripture describes our relationship with Jesus as a marriage relationship. Uh, not, a we- not in a weird way, but because our relationship with Christ, like marriage, is a covenant relationship. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, if, if you can turn there, go ahead. If not, you know, go ahead and listen. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, let the, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the marriage relationship, what makes the marriage relationship so important to the Lord it's not just because he thinks marriage is a good idea, which he does, right? In Genesis 1, when he created man and woman, he said they are very good. This is very good. Marriage is a creation by God. But even more so, marriage depicts the relationship that Christ has with his church. So when marriages are messed up, God takes that seriously because he takes his relationship with us seriously. Therefore, our sexual sin deserves death. Jesus died for our sexual sin. We see in this passage that her ways, the ways of the, of the strange woman, inappropriate sexual activity leads to death and destruction. And that would be horribly depressing news if it wasn't for Jesus. Jesus died for our sexual sin. The only true remedy for our sin is the grace found at the cross. When he says, marry wisdom, essentially what he's, he's, he's saying is be in a relationship with Jesus. 
It does not mean, though, that all of our sin will go away, nor will its temporary consequences, but we now have the means to fight sin. Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We cannot begin to correctly fight sin like sexual sin without a relationship with Christ. So we see in conclusion, God is deeply concerned about our sin because he knows its destructive power in our lives. Instead of ignoring us, he lovingly gives us the gift of his son so that we can be saved from its eternal consequences. So if you're here today, and you're not a believer, you've not given your life to Christ, I would urge you, marry wisdom. Have a relationship with Jesus. What does that mean? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on humanity and, and lived a perfect, sinless life. And then at the cross, he took our sin on himself and died for it. Sin deserves death, and Jesus took on that death. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave, conquering sin and Satan and death. And he offers us life. So to trust Jesus, to be in relationship with Jesus, is to trust him, to depend on him, to say, I can't save myself, but your sacrifice on the cross, your resurrection did save me. Lord, I'm trusting that for my salvation. That's what it means to marry wisdom. That's what it means to bind wisdom around your neck is to trust Jesus alone for your salvation. Maybe you're here today and there's an area of your life that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about. I don't know what that might be. It may not even be sexual sin. It may be sexual sin. Whatever the case is, if you need to use this time of invitation that we're about to have as a time to repent and, and bring that before the Lord and renew that relationship, refresh that relationship with Him, to, to bring healing to that brokenness that is there, use this as an opportunity to do that. Maybe again today, if you're, if you're looking for a church to serve in, to be a part of, that's going to preach God's word, no matter if how awkward the topics are, we're going to preach God's word. This is a church I hope that will do that. If you'd like to join our church, come see me during, this, after the, during the invitation or after the service. I'd love to share with you how we can go about that process, how we can take the next step toward you becoming a member of our church. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have to see your word. be in it, to be challenged by it. God, we live in a culture that has devalued sexuality in so many ways. Lord, sexual sin is so prevalent in our news. It's so prevalent in our, in our world. God, help us to be a people who do not take the culture's understanding of sexual sin, Lord, but help us to take your perspective. Lord, I pray for those here who are dealing with a sexual brand of sin. Lord, if they are a believer, I pray that they would reject, that they would reject that sin. Lord, that they would draw near to you and repent of it. Lord, they would renew their relationship with you, they would restore that relationship with you through repentance. Lord, if there's someone here who is not been in relationship with you who is not in a relationship with you 
Help them to understand the gravity of their sin, the seriousness of their sin. Lord, draw them to yourself even now. Pray, Lord, during this time of invitation that we would respond as you would have us to.